0: Hello, and welcome to the other half. Episode 2.41 Aina of Battenberg, a final triumph. To this, the final episode of the second season of The Other Half. It has taken 41 episodes and almost two years to tell the story of Queen Victoria's daughters and granddaughters, the women who saw and shaped the fortunes of Europe in one of the most seismic periods in its history. Each of these women played their part in the lives of the nations into which they married, some to a greater extent than others, and while some of their stories had happy endings, it's fair to say that most of them did not. Whether it be the scourge of haemophilia, the fortunes of war, bad judgement, or simply terrible luck, the majority of the women who we have covered saw their lives ended either in solitude, exile, or even murder. And today, we will find out what fate had in store for our final subject, Aina of Battenberg. After today's episode, I will be going on a six-week hiatus to recharge my batteries and do the necessary research for the third season of the show – You'll have to stick around until the end of it, however, to find out what that is. I'm a tease like that. In the last episode, we saw Ana's first two decades as Queen of Spain. Her marriage to her husband, which had begun with much love and affection, soured after two of their children were afflicted with haemophilia, including their heir Alfonsito, the Prince of Asturias. Humiliated by her husband's frequent affairs and sidelined by enemies at court, Aina had to forge her own path – reforming and improving the nation's healthcare system and building her own image as a fashionable and modern queen. Today, we will see how a political crisis in Spain would undo all of that hard work. But before we get going, I'd like to give a shout out to all my Patreon supporters that keep the show going. If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, Welcome back. This, this, the of For all of her efforts in health and charity. Aina had not made much of an impact on the Spanish political scene. Her first years as queen were dominated by childbirth, and she did not see it as her place to have an independent political voice. She had some influence over the king, the only person with whom she gave political advice, but this was rarely sought and never publicised. The first time that we know of a significant intervention by Aina came in 1911, Seven men had been found guilty of murdering a judge and police chief in the town of Culera, near Valencia. All were sentenced to death, but their sentences were commuted to life imprisonment, save for the ringleader. Ana advised Alfonso to show mercy to the leader and commute his sentence as well, but the king was said to be torn between the desire for clemency and pressure from his ministers for the maximum penalty to be applied. In the end, he followed his wife's advice. And told a newspaper that it had been her influence that had persuaded him to do so. He was quoted as saying, Every time the Queen spoke to me, she encouraged me to show clemency. Great was the joy of the Queen when I, at last, told her that I had decided to grant the commutation. It was one of the happiest moments of my existence. Now, those of you who have followed me since the Queens of England days may recognize this little trope, as it was very popular in medieval times. It was quite common, for, if a king wanted to show mercy, but also be tough at the same time, for his wife to throw herself down at his feet to beg on behalf of the accused. That way, his leniency would be cast as chivalric, noble and merciful, rather than weak. That is not to say that Ana had no agency or input on the matter. Far from it. It showed that she had the influence and standing to be utilised in this manner. During the First World War, alongside her charity work, she concerned herself with helping to repatriate British prisoners via Gibraltar, at which she was also very successful. By the 1920s, however, Spain was thrust into political crisis. Unemployment was rife, and labour stoppages and strikes were on the rise. There was also continuing agitation in Catalonia for greater autonomy and independence. Hoping to distract the people from these problems with a spot of military glory... Alfonso ordered the Spanish armies in Morocco, against the advice of his ministers, to go on the offensive, looking to pacify a region that had been resisting Spanish colonial control. This war in Morocco, known as the Rif War, sharply divided Spain, with conservatives and many liberals seeing it as a chance to replace Spain's lost empire in the Americas with territory in North Africa, and socialists who saw it as a distracting waste of men and resources. Alfonso went to the tomb of El Cid, a Spanish hero of the Reconquista, and made a speech proclaiming that his armies were about to win a great victory over the Rif insurgents. Even as he was saying these words, 10,000 Spanish troops were ambushed and killed at the Battle of Anual. Their commander, General Silvestre, committed suicide in shame. Discovered amongst his papers were written orders from the king... Ordering him to launch the attack that had ended in such disaster. When news reached Spain of the catastrophe, it caused political uproar. Multiple commissions of inquiry were set up to investigate the reasons behind what had happened. But before they could report, there was a military coup d'etat. General Primo de Rivera overthrew the democratically elected government and declared himself as dictator. Far from opposing the coup, Alfonso embraced it, as one of de Rivera's first acts was to disband the inquiries. Indeed, to shroud the coup in a cloak of legitimacy, the king named Primo de Rivera as Prime Minister. The dictator set up a directorate, a military hunter with eight generals acting as a cabinet and he as its president. Primo de Rivera kept the monarchy intact, but its reputation would be forever tarnished by the coup. The first state visit undertaken by Alfonso and Eina after the coup was to Italy. There too, a prime minister, this one Benito Mussolini, had just launched a coup and proclaimed a dictatorship. Like de Rivera, Mussolini had kept the monarchy intact, but only as a figurehead. His fascist party now ruled Italy totally, and he saw de Rivera as a natural ally. This visit, which was full of fascist propaganda underlined to Ana that her husband was making a big mistake in not opposing de Rivera. She saw, as Alfonso did not, that his association with the dictator meant that he was a hostage to fortune. At best, he would be a puppet king to a military strongman. At worst, he would be brought down with the general and potentially share his fate. Alfonso's unpopularity at this time reached such heights that there was open plotting to have him removed from the throne, the British Ambassadors of Spain, wrote about a conversation he'd had with Ana, where she stated that, quote, ex-politicians were clearly trying to involve her in intrigue against the king. One of them had even gone so far as to hint to her majesty that the king would have to go, but that the queen might remain as regent. He went on to say that Ana had rejected such a notion, but then went on to rather presciently suggest the danger of the situation. Quote, There is, therefore, a deadlock between the directorate and the former political parties. This would not so much matter if the person of the king were not involved. The king's responsibility has, in his recent utterances, emphasised the association of his majesty with the directorate. This is, to say the least of it, unfortunate. Although Aina remained scrupulously loyal to her husband, his cronies saw her as dangerous and wanted her removed. The leader of this cabal was the king's best friend, the Marquis of Viana. He petitioned the pope to let Alfonso divorce Ana and marry instead his mistress Carmen Ruiz Moragas, a woman who had already borne him a son and would go on to have another in a few years' time. The pope was having none of that, but it did not stop Viana from continuing his campaign against Ana. Being the Victorian princess that she was, Ana took it all with a healthy dose of stiff upper lip but one day she decided that she had had enough. She summoned Viana and gave him several pieces of her mind. He tried to charm his way out, but Ana was having none of it. She ended the interview by saying, quote, It is not in my power to punish you as you deserve. Only God can do that. Your punishment will have to wait for the next world. Viana did not have wait too long to find out if what Ana said was true. Shell-shocked, he dropped dead of a heart attack that very same evening. His death should have meant a resurgence for Ana, but unfortunately, her friends unwittingly sabotaged the situation for her. Ana had realised that she needed to be the queen of all Spain, not just those who shared her political and societal views. Her friends, however, led by the Duke and Duchess of Serra, feared this. They had done very well out of her patronage, did not want to see their privileged situation diminished. They therefore acted in a possessive manner towards her, preventing others from seeing her and generally alienating the very people that Ana was trying to charm. Primo de Rivera's dictatorship lasted for seven years, making him Spain's longest serving leader since the restoration of the monarchy in 1828. He had been initially quite popular, winning the war in Morocco and launching public work projects to boost the economy. However, taxes he raised to pay for all these policies alienated the wealthy, and cronyism within his inner circle made enemies of much the army's officer corps. Liberals and socialists already hated him for his suspension of civil liberties, censorship of the press, and imprisonment of political dissidents. This meant that when the Great Depression hit in 1930, the cards came crashing down. Primo de Rivera resigned once it was clear that he did not have the support of the king nor the army anymore. But instead of choosing a new civilian prime minister, Alfonso picked another military man, General Berenguer. He tried to rule in a sort of Goldilocks manner, maintaining the dictatorship but lessening the censorship and authoritarian acts of his predecessor. This led to a regime that was both illegitimate and toothless and managed to unite the opposition against him without fear of repression. An alliance of Catalans, socialists and moderate republicans signed the Pact of San Sebastián. They formed a revolutionary committee, led by a liberal lawyer named Nisteto al Sarra Zamora. Its purpose was simple. Depose the monarchy and restore the republic. While all of this was going on, Ana was facing problems at home. Alfonso had had a heart attack in 1930 during a game of polo, the stress of holding on to his throne clearly affecting his health. And then, a few months later, her mother, Princess Beatrice, fell ill with bronchitis, requiring Ana to make a trip back to England. When she came back a month later, she was greeted by enormous cheering crowds. They shouted, Long live the Queen! And down with the Republicans! Her car slowed to a crawl, and when they reached the palace, they did not disperse. This prompted Ana, Alfonso, and the children to appear on the balcony and wave to delirious masses. Ana was visibly moved by the reaction, with onlookers remarking that they saw her eyes welling up with tears. Alfonso saw this as an affirmation that the people were with him, but all that it really demonstrated was how bitterly divided Spain had become. Ana was not fooled, but could not persuade her husband that his regime was in dire peril. She had seen too many cousins thrown off their thrones, and did not want that fate for herself or her children. Another person who was correctly reading the tea leaves was a former prime minister, José Sánchez de Guerrera. He suggested to the Queen that, to save the monarchy, Alfonso must be persuaded to abdicate the throne in favour of his third son, Juan, the teenage Count of Barcelona. In such a moment of danger, the throne could not be entrusted to the haemophiliac Prince of Asturias or his disabled brother Jaime. Since Prince Juan was still young, Guerrero wanted Ana to act as regent to help him through the crisis. Now, Guerrero was not wrong. This probably was the best bet for the survival of the House of Bourbon. But Ana could not do it. It was against her very nature to betray her husband she was loyal to the end to a man who had shown her very little in return. And, in so doing, she cast aside her last chance to remain as Queen. In April 1931... Local elections were held in Spain for the first time in nine years. These were not for the Cortes in Madrid, but, like all local elections, they were as much a referendum on the central government as they were a vote on municipal matters. The results saw an overwhelming advance for the Republic Alliance that had been sealed at San Sebastián. Every provincial capital, save Cadiz, returned Republican majorities and Madrid and Barcelona, Spain's two biggest cities, saw landslide victories for the opposition. Now, taken as a whole, the situation was not too bad for the royalists. Indeed, they won more votes nationally than the republicans. But no regime can rule effectively if it does not have, if not the loyalty, then at least the consent of its towns and cities. When he heard the news, Alfonso said dejectedly that, quote, I feel as though I had gone to visit a friend, and when I got to the house... I had learned that he was dead. It was clear to the king and the army that if he did not resign the throne, then they risked civil war. Separatism in Catalonia and the Basque Country threatened to boil over into wars of independence. Whole army units began to mutiny en masse, and the military leadership told the king that he could not stay on. His ministers invited in the Republican leader, Alessandro Zamora, and asked him to form a government. Like most coups, it was years in the making, but very quick in the execution. Alfonso tried to cling on as a figurehead monarch in the British style, but it was far too late for that. Just three days after the election, he was advised to leave the royal palace with all haste, leaving everything, including his family, behind. He did, though, obtain assurances from the new regime that his wife and children would not be harmed. After getting that, he was taken with all haste to Paris. As Alfonso's car sped into the night, Ana saw the palace guards abandon their posts and slip away into the darkness. Only 22 men were left to protect her and her children. If a Republican mob had wanted, they could have easily forced their way in. All but one of her children were with her, the exception being Juan, who was at the Royal Naval College at Cadiz. Crowds began to gather at the gates. They shouted death to the Queen and long live the Republic, the very opposite chance to the ones that she had heard only two months previous. They began to push at the iron bars, their voices getting even louder. Aina would have been thinking at this time about her cousin, Empress Alex. She and her family had been killed during a revolution. Maybe Aina now would be joining the list of executed royal consorts alongside her and Marie Antoinette. Although the situation must have been terrifying and disorientating, It was clear that the new regime meant Ana and her children no harm. They wanted them out of the country as quickly as possible. They were, after all, a beacon for the sizeable monarchist strongholds in rural areas. But they knew that if any harm befell them, it could fatally damage the nascent republic. Soldiers were dispatched to disperse the mob, forming a human barrier between them and the palace. Eventually, the crowd dissipated, allowing Ana to breathe a sigh of relief. She later recalled, quote, The night seemed endless. I packed no bag, sorted out no belongings. As I was forced to go, I would leave with nothing. She tried to write some letters but couldn't focus. Her main concern was for her children. Alphonsita was suffering from a haemophiliac attack that prevented him from being able to get out of bed, and her daughters were trembling with fear. Aina settled down in the children's sitting room and waited the night out with them. At 5am the next morning, she was awoken by one of her husband's friends, Joaquin Santos Suarez. He told her, bluntly, The revolution has come. She had to leave with all haste for the railway station to take a train to Paris. She had just enough time to have a quick breakfast and say goodbye to her servants before being bundled out the back door with her children and being hurried to Escorial, a town on the outskirts of the capital. They were so quick in leaving, indeed, that they realised halfway there that they would be too early for the train. Not wanting to have to linger on the platform, they stopped by the side of the road at Galapagar. Ana got out of the car, lit a cigarette, and sat on a large boulder. Around her sat her children, some loyal attendants, and soldiers who were there to guard them. It is said that this was Ana's final court in Spain. Although Ana's list of worries must have been endless... Top of them was for her son, Alfonsito. He was in a tremendous amount of pain, and had to be carried in a stretcher or in the arms of a chauffeur. Just before getting on the train at Escorial, she was met by the British ambassador. He had done very little to protect or support the Queen. He rather lamely asked if there was anything he could do for her. Quote, "'It's too late now,' was Aina's reply. They travelled in the royal carriage, but even this didn't go to plan, as it caught fire en route to France, forcing Eina and her family to make a quick exit onto another coach. There, they all had to squeeze into cabins like ordinary passengers, a rather fitting end to her time in Spain. They arrived in Paris later that evening, hot, tired and dishevelled. A small crowd of Spanish expats came to greet them, more out of curiosity than any real enthusiasm. They were taken to the Hotel Maurice, a fancy place next to the Tuileries Gardens on the Rue de Rivoli, where they were reunited with the deposed King Alfonso. Their lives in exile had officially begun. In later years, Ana would say that the revolution, quote, came so suddenly, so unexpectedly. It seems that I returned from London only a day before, and the crowds at the station that met my train, cheering, delighted, throwing flowers at me, and then, it's unbelievable, how could a nation change its sympathies so abruptly? Although some did place blame on Ana's shoulders, there's no way that she can be attributed any blame for the fall of the monarchy. The mistakes were all on her husband and on the men that he had trusted to lead Spain. They did not stay long at the hotel Maurice, moving quickly to Fontainebleau just outside the capital. The only member of the family not to join them was Alfonsito, who was transferred to a specialist ward in Switzerland. Being cooped up together as a family was too much for Alfonso and Ana's already extremely strained marriage. In Spain they had been able to live separate lives and stay out of each other's way, but now that was no longer possible. This is yet another way in which they differed from their fellow deposed royals Nicholas and Alexandra. They had been a close couple and family, and got closer still after the revolution. The same experience only drove Alfonso and Ana further apart. This was only exacerbated by their friends, who poisoned each of them against the other, sowing even greater discord. Things came to a head when Alfonso outright accused Ana of having an affair with her friend, the Duke of La Serra. Not only was this almost certainly not true, the brass nose on Alfonso to accuse his wife of being unfaithful when his constant infidelity was the stuff of legend must have been infuriating for Ana. He insisted that she must break off all communications with the Laseras, but Ana would never agree to that. They were her closest friends, and she needed them now more than ever before. She would not end a friendship just to appease the hypocritical lies of a husband who didn't even love her anyway. From now on, their marriage would be on paper only. Their address would remain at Fontainebleau, but in practice, neither of them were ever there preferring to travel around Europe rather than sit around in their new home and ponder on what might have been. Their children too were off, trying to carve out a new life in this brave new world. Alfonsito remained in his rather dreary clinic in Switzerland, and while there he met a young Cuban woman named Adelmira San Pedro. She was the daughter of a merchant, a commoner, and so the match was opposed by the whole family. Deposed or not, Royals did not marry commoners. Alfonso told his son that if he went through with the marriage then his allowance would be slashed and he would have to give up his right of succession. Given that he wasn't going to inherit the throne anyway the latter was hardly much of a threat. Eina was somewhat more sympathetic to the match and even attended the wedding at Lausanne in 1933 with her daughters. Following the marriage Alfonsito and Edelmira moved to the United States. Jaime too went his own way Marrying the daughter of an Italian Duke in 1935. His brother Juan enlisted in the British Royal Navy, rising to the rank of lieutenant. He too married an Italian noblewoman, Princess Mercedes of the Two Sicilies. Gonzalo, the other haemophiliac son, went to university in Louvain and seemed set for a fairly ordinary life. Unfortunately, however, in 1934, he was killed in a car crash while on a family holiday in Austria. As for the daughters, well, they stayed with their father, settling in Rome. Beatrice married an Italian prince, Alessandra Tolonia, and had a long and happy marriage, a rare thing in her family. Her sister, Maria Cristina, did not marry so nobly, instead matching with an Italian commoner. She, like her eldest brother, was forced to give up her succession rights to do so. As for Anna, Well, she mostly settled in London, acquiring a house in Bayswater near Hyde Park, and lived out the life of a London socialite, frequently travelling to Italy to see her children and later grandchildren. She was also able to spend a great deal of time with her ageing mother, Princess Beatrice, and her cousin, King George V. Over in Spain, the new Republican government had lurched from crisis to crisis, until, in 1936, the Spanish Civil War broke out. On the government side were the Republicans, Socialists and Communists, while arraigned against them were a motley crew of fascists, carlists and monarchists under the command of General Francisco Franco. The royal family, unsurprisingly, were on the side of Franco and hoped that, should he win, he would restore the monarchy. Ana had no great love for Franco or his cause, but passionately hoped for the restoration of the monarchy so that her son Juan could take up his father's place as king. This, unfortunately for her, made Aina a target for anti-fascist demonstrators in London, and she was advised to leave the country with all haste. She first moved to Italy, where she attended the baptism of Juan and Mercedes' first son, Juan Carlos, a ceremony performed by Cardinal Pacelli, who would later become Pope Pius XII. While there, she learned that her eldest son, whom she had not seen for a few years, had been injured in a car crash in September 1938. She took the next steamer to New York in the hope of seeing Alphonsita before he died, but unfortunately she was too late. When she returned to Europe, she settled for a while in Lausanne, before moving to Rome just after the outbreak of World War II, to be near her husband, whose health was waning after having suffered a series of heart attacks. This move was somewhat complicated by Italy's entry into the war on the side of Nazi Germany, but she was permitted to stay while her husband was ill. Alfonso eventually died in february nineteen forty one. His death must have arisen a series of quite complex emotions for Ana. On the one hand, this was a man who had caused her a great deal of misery, one who had not returned the love that she had given to him and treated her with disdain and neglect. On the other hand, he was her husband and the father of her children. And for a woman of her generation, that still mattered a great deal no matter what had happened between them. Just before his death, Alfonso had named Juan as his successor, making him, in the eyes of royalists, King Juan III, though in practice he would never take up the throne. She remained for a little longer in Rome, but in the eyes of Mussolini she was a British princess far more than she was a Spanish dowager. She couldn't be trusted, so was forced to move back to Lausanne in neutral Switzerland, and spent the rest of the war there save a trip to London in 1944 to attend her mother's funeral. She was joined there by Juan and his wife and growing family, setting up a kind of Spanish court in exile. She took particular interest in Juan Carlos, wanting to make sure that he was brought up to be a man suited for kingship, and her granddaughter Margarita, who had been born blind. She took on the role of the fun grandma, letting the children get away with the kind of infractions that would not be tolerated in front of their parents. They called her Gangan, the same name that she had given to Queen Victoria when she was a little girl. She watched with worry as Juan negotiated with Francisco Franco, the dictator of Spain following his victory in the Spanish Civil War. She knew that the only hope of the restoration of the monarchy would be at Franco's behest, but also firmly disapproved of fascism. She was therefore very sad when Juan Carlos was sent to Madrid to be educated at the age of ten. Aina would spend the rest of her life in Lausanne, living as a colourful dowager, telling stories to her friends and well-wishers of the glorious past. Her greatest weakness at this time, though, was an inability to adapt to her more straitened financial situation. Franco had agreed to a fairly generous financial stipend for her, but she struggled to live within her means. Indeed, the reason she settled in Switzerland and not London was largely because of the tax situation. Even despite Despite this, she was forced to sell off some of the crown jewels to pay off some of her accumulating debts. Although she was far from the only deposed royal in Switzerland at this time, she was always referred to as the Queen, due to the opulence and grandeur of her presence and her aloof nature. Her home was a haven for Spanish monarchists and fallen aristocrats, even some of those had previously been her enemies. Indeed, one lady who was keen to remake her acquaintance was Eugenia Sol, a woman who had made her life a misery back in Madrid. Ana tried to be the bigger person and agree to an audience, but it was a distinctly unpleasant affair. Ana could not let bygones be bygones when it came to the woman who had treated her so shabbily. In October 1967, the remaining Spanish royals and their friends gathered in Lausanne for Ana's 80th birthday. It was the greatest assembly of Spanish royalty since the fall of the monarchy. After a mass, 150 guests gathered for a celebratory luncheon. Juan gave the toast in English, but his jokes ran rather flat and focused rather too much on what had been lost than what could be. Indeed, onlookers reported seeing Ana in tears throughout the whole thing. On that day, however, Ana made a bit of a gamble she asked her grandson Juan Carlos and his wife Sofia if she could be godmother to their eldest son Felipe. This would mean that she would have to be present in Madrid for the baptism, the first time that she would have set foot on Spanish soil since she had fled over three decades before. Juan Carlos agreed, but had to do quite a bit of persuading with General Franco to make it happen. She knew that she still had supporters in Spain and hoped that her visit would... Might provide a shot in the arm for the monarchist cause and persuade Francisco to name Juan or Juan Carlos as his heir. Despite little advertising for the visit, she was greeted off the plane with massive crowds, and they did not leave for the duration of her three day trip. Thirty seven years had passed since she had last been in Spain, and yet stories of her had not abated. She had never been a hugely popular queen but it seems that absence had made the heart of Spaniards grow fonder. Although she had gone for the baptism, the most significant event of the trip was a short private visit to the home of another grandson, Alfonso, the son of her second son, Jaime. He had pretensions of the throne himself, despite his father having renounced his succession rights following his marriage. Eina impressed on him that the family's future depended not on him, but on Juan and his son Juan Carlos. This visit made such an impression on Alfonso that he never truly pressed his claim. She also made quite an impact on the generalissimo himself. Her daughter-in-law Sophia later recalled that Franco's eyes shone when he saw her at the christening, and Ana made a passionate argument to him that he should name her grandson Juan Carlos as his heir. This was the first time that she had explicitly said that her son, Juan, had to be ad- this was the first time that she had explicitly said that her son Juan had to be sacrificed for the continuation of the dynasty, and it had quite an effect. She passed Franco a note saying, quote, Though for me the king is Don Juan, we are all old, and no one knows what will happen if things are not resolved. The first is Spain, the second the monarchy, the third the dynasty, and the fourth the person, and the prince Juan Carlos is mature. And it's fair to say that her efforts paid off. It would be churlish to say that Franco's naming of Juan Carlos as a successor was entirely down to Ana. It would equally be wrong to dismiss her influence. What everyone did not know, however, was that this trip had been undertaken very much against the advice of her doctors. She had been suffering from gallbladder and liver pains, and this disease worsened over the next few months. In March 1969, with the end nigh, the Spanish royals once again gathered, this time to say goodbye to the family matriarch. And a few weeks later, on the 15th of April, she died at the age of 81. General Franco honoured her with three days of national mourning, and sent a government minister to attend her funeral. Three months later, he named Juan Carlos as his successor. And then six years after that, Franco himself died, leading to the restoration of the monarchy, and Juan Carlos's coronation as king, he would guide Spain back to democracy, and reigned until 2014, when he was forced to abdicate following a financial scandal. He was succeeded by his son Felipe, Ana's great grandson as well as her godson, who reigns to this day. Ana's remains would be transferred to Spain in 1985, where she now rests alongside her husband in the royal tomb at El Escorial. And it is there that we end our story and indeed the season. I hope that you have enjoyed it. It's been a wild ride through the late 19th and early 20th centuries. We've seen some highs, but let's be honest, quite a few more lows, and taken a great swathe of Western, Southern and Eastern Europe in the process. But, in the words of Sir Winston Churchill, we must leave the treasures of the past and look to the future. I've been podcasting now for over five years, And so far on my two shows, I've only covered European royalty. We've had the Queens of England, the early Empresses of Rome, and the Daughters and Granddaughters of Queen Victoria. This has meant that we've only covered a certain kind of woman, a certain national, racial and societal strata. Even before the events of this year, I've been keen that the next season of the podcast should showcase a greater range of women, and I'm delighted that my patrons have felt the same way. Therefore, the next season of the podcast will be on folk heroines, the women who shape nations. When it comes to nation building and the telling of a national story, it is striking to me how often we find women at their centre. So in England, we have Queen Boudicca of the Iceni, whose rebellion against Rome stimulated a sense of national consciousness. France has Joan of Arc, a peasant girl whose preaching helped them to throw the English out and entrench the French monarchy. India has the Rani of Jansi, China has Milan, and so on. Some of the women who will cover are real, some possibly are not, but when it comes to folk heroines, the reality of their life is not really important. It's the stories that matter. History is nothing without its telling, and that is what this series will explore. So, I will now go on a six-week break to prepare for the new series, and we'll be back on the 9th of August. If you would like to suggest subjects for the series, then please do email in. You can find out where to do so on the website, theotherhalfpodcast.co.uk. Stay safe, everyone, and I'll see you very soon.